0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, a shocker I know. Kalia Kuno, an organizer with Cooperation Jackson, will explore the appeal of Joe Biden to black voters. And Dibyesh Anand will explore the ideology of the BJP, the Indian fascist party, and its leader, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Nothing about coronavirus or its economic fallout. I'm not sure what I could contribute to coverage of the pandemic, and I just don't know what to make of the sharp stock market sell-off which looks big and violent enough to be something of broad economic significance and not just to people who own stocks. Nor do I have any idea what damage all the sickness and isolation will do. I'll have more to say next week, God willing. For now, I'll just note that the stock market started all this from a point of world historical overvaluation and was vulnerable to any kind of shock that could spark a sell-off, and coronavirus certainly qualifies. While U.S. households are, by conventional measures, in better financial shape than they were in 2007 going into that crisis, corporations aren't. They've been squandering money, buying their own stock to boost their prices, and for many, their treasuries are empty. At the very least, we'll see bankruptcies and layoffs in travel and tourism, hospitality and retail. Complicating everything is the fact that we're governed by morons and cretins who don't have the slightest idea of what to do but lie. As a friend said, it's enough to make you wish for a neoliberal technocrat. But Trump is exactly the kind of leader you'd expect a rotting society to produce. Anyway, more next week. Many people have been wondering why black voters have been so enthusiastic about Joe Biden, a charmless and untalented character of dubious mental acuity. Back in the 1980s, Biden spoke at a birthday party for John Stennis, the long-serving segregationist senator from Mississippi, and compared him favorably to the Confederate general Stonewall Jackson. In the 1990s, Biden was one of the architects of, not merely supporters, but principal authors of, the war on drugs and mass incarceration. Yes, he served loyally under Barack Obama, but he carries a lot of baggage from previous years. So what is his appeal? Here's Kali an organizer with Cooperation Jackson, which is a project to build a network of cooperatives and other types of worker-owned and democratically self-managed enterprises in the capital of Mississippi. Jackson's also one of the poorest cities in the United States. Kali a lot of people have been wondering why black voters have been so loyal uh, to Joe Biden, which continues the question, why were they so loyal to Hillary Clinton and, you know, her husband before that? What is
1: your thinking on this? Safe bets. I mean, that's, that's in essence what a lot of this comes down to. Uh, folks want uh, tried and true quantities, uh, particularly in light of the threat that <laughs> Trump has posed. Uh, some elements of, of normalcy. Are definitely kind of kicking in uh, to a high degree, and just a, a grave uncertainty as to where things uh, are headed and where black folks really fit into that picture. I think is your kind of surface element uh, uh, to it uh, that you have to just kind of take it to you know take into account.
0: But now you said on Facebook, there's also a, a conservatism that's unacknowledged. So what what right. do you mean by that? Well, that's that's what
1: the safe bet is. I mean, there is historically, I mean, if you look at, I would say, let's just in the 20th century, early 21st century, uh, you could count on black voters, you know, where we could vote, you know, which was often restricted to the Northeast, you know, some parts of the Midwest and the West Coast for, you know, a large chunk of that time, more than half of half of that. And so there was a consistent pattern of trying to extend Democratic rights that Black folks were fighting for uh, and went to the ballot box in droves uh, anytime there was uh, a candidate in either the Republican or the Democratic Party. And I I put that in uh, captions because folks forget that uh, in the early part of the 20th century, most Black voters went with the Republicans because that was uh, the more progressive party at least on certain issues at that time. That didn't really change until uh, FDR and the New Deal, and even that took some time to really shift. But uh, anybody who was promising to extend democratic rights, the right to vote, the right to access to public you know, space, to have a public life, uh, Black folks would flock to that. In the 1980s, you started to see a major shift. Uh, after there were some certain gains you know, from the struggles of the 50s and 60s. Uh, and people had some uh, a few material assets and some material positioning that they wanted to uh, protect or feel it. They had some interest in protecting. You started to see political and voting patterns change. Now it was gradual at first, but I think now you've seen a full-on maturation of it to when people are just taking calculated uh, risks based on their conservatism, based upon trying to hold on to both their their, their status. Uh, in their material gain, and they're voting along those interests. I mean, I think we have to really just analyze that. But, I mean, deeper still, I think let's get to some of the deeper parts that you, you that you want to get at, Doug, and I think we have to get at. You know, there's been a a, a very coordinated right-wing movement in, in the black community and other communities as well, but let's just hide out, highlight one particular dimension of it uh, that has been growing in, in its power and its influence, particularly in the South. And that's this right-wing prosperity gospel movement as just one example of something that's been really targeting uh, very deliberately black folks since the 1990s as a growing uh, movement, uh, which is very much uh, rooted in a neoliberal appeal and a neoliberal interpretation of scripture, uh, uh, be it the Bible and to a certain extent even the Quran, which puts people you know, in direct line with capital accumulation in its most vicious forms. And it brings a message home that uh, not only is it right uh, to have things, but uh, it's kind of your duty being a good servant to God uh, to strive for material things. And with that, all of the different types of cultural conservatism uh, that crop on board, which is not being charitable to the poor, uh, forcing everybody uh, into uh, onerous kind of labor conditions as as a means to uh, build good character and discipline. Uh, we can go on and on, but this is a concerted movement that has been gaining serious traction for well over uh, two and a half, almost three three decades now that many people slept on. And I think you're beginning to see its real political impact uh, these last two elections in the black community with, as you noted, uh, this kind of blank check support for Hillary, at least amongst the black political establishment, which is now. Transferring itself over to Biden. Uh, yeah, the prosperity
0: gospel also counsels self-reliance. It's very anti-political, anti solidaristic right?
1: Right. That's right. very much so. Very much so. And it's a very dangerous tool. And it, it really counters and undermines really centuries of a particular type of liberation theology, you know, that grew amongst the black church uh, and was a deep and served as a deep reservoir uh, of resistance in the black community. Uh, often, when times looked even more bleak than they do right now. Yeah, I, I saw a
0: Creflo Dollar uh, rally uh, or service. I don't know what he calls them. Uh, about 15 years ago, I went to Madison Square Garden and watched <laughs> it. It was the most appalling thing. I mean, he's telling, he's telling people, even if you have to buy shoes for your baby and you don't have the money, give me money. It will come back give to me. you. Yeah. That's I, right. This guy has, you know, several houses and a couple of private planes and things like that. But uh, to watch these people, they weren't, didn't look poor. They looked middle working class. Uh, but they were just dumping, you know, cash into into the coffers of this this fraud. Uh, it's just appalling. Yeah, sight. Yeah. Uh, I did. I think a lot of people don't realize the extent of that. Now, is this still confined to this kind of subset of Creflo dollar, or is it spread into the larger uh, Black uh,
1: Christian Church? No, it's, it's spread largely deep into the Black Christian Church. It's been gaining its strength. I can tell you here in Jackson. Uh, I would say, um, if you judge by attendance, you know, it's the big mega churches where this prosperity gospel was being preached, where the large flocks are, you know, uh, these days. Now I would say overall church attendance, you know, in the black community here in Jackson as elsewhere is declining. Uh, but amongst folks who kind of deem themselves to be in the middle class, which, you know, I think let's just be more clear and precise. It's the more stable sections of the working class, you know, that have kind of taken on this, this, a confusing moniker that's been adopted in the United States to, to obscure class struggle, but that's who's there, right? And you're kind of the the lower echelons of the working class and those who are uh, in very precarious forms of of uh, chronic underemployment or just structurally unemployed, that level of church uh, attendance and those folks, you know, really preaching the, the, the good old gospel, the liberation theology gospel, are, are few and far in between now. Is there a generational pattern to this? Oh, deep de- generational pattern. And you're going to see that reflected in the, in, in the vote. I mean, if you look at what happened starting with South Carolina, Black youth vote basically just didn't turn out. And I would wager from you know, looking at our experience, not only does it not turn out, but most of it is just not registered to vote. Most folks, you know, I would say under 30, at least that we deal with, that we talk to, I'll keep it, you know, on a more of a personal basis. Uh, just take the whole arena uh, uh, as a joke, and uh, in this case, you know, folks conscious of looking at how the democratic establishment is holding up Biden are just only confirmed in their belief and say, "Well, why should we engage in something this this fraudulent, this this criminal? It's not going to to change uh, fundamentally the system or change anything uh, about it." So, why you know play into the illusions so that's the, uh, that's the other side to this that I think is not so much being missed and what I was talking about that you alluded to uh, that we need to pay more be mindful and pay much more attention to the class divides within the black community and how that's impacting politics. I think that was a small reflection of it you know because those who are propelling Biden are folks who are well over forty uh, and, and over, and those who, you know, I'll use him as an example that Bernie is trying to uh, appeal to, uh, I think his message more or less resonates. Uh, but there still is this tremendous climb around the belief in the system uh, or lack thereof uh, that's going to be much harder to uh, address. Because in truth, you know, uh, what what I've heard mirrored oftentimes in a lot of our conversations uh, is that, you know, voting away capitalism is not on the ballot. Voting away patriarchy is not on the ballot. And these are things that were the younger generation, you know, that are definitely uh, have any degree of political consciousness. These are the things that they're looking for, not half measures. And that's the other side of this equation that I think has to be taken into account. I'm
0: speaking with Kali Acuno of Cooperation Jackson. Sanders is highly imperfect, but uh, more than most other uh, Democratic candidates or any candidates for president, he does offer some attempt or some uh, approximation of voting away patriarchy and capitalism. But oh, the, the best, yeah, the, the skept- best we've seen in generations. So is the skepticism about the whole process just so deep that uh, he the, the, he can't cut through that?
1: It's too early to tell. I think in that regard, on the national level, but I think you know in the conversations that that I'm a part of and privy to. People, I think rightly so, see the Democrats, the Democratic establishment being more of a block to Bernie than, you know, the the overall general election. And in that regard, a lot of folks just don't see a way for him to win or even get out of the Democratic pri- Party primary. So I think there's, a, there's a, just a deep cynicism within the overall system and, and the apparatuses by which, you know, people are organized to engage it. Well, that and cynicism as well is, is Yeah, you know what I can say to a lot of folks, you know, because there's a lot of our crew who, you know, four years ago, three and a half years ago, found Bernie appealing, did some work for Bernie, you know, here on the local level, uh, and then to just watch the Democratic Party establishment uh, steal it from it uh, from him, basically, and just cheat him out of uh, even having a chance—that really turned a lot of folks off. And what I've seen in, in some of those individuals. You know, there's still, hey, Bernie's the best option. I, I like what he's saying. But there just hasn't been the same level of energy uh, for those who want to support this campaign here, this go-around, than there was uh, in 2016. And I imagine some of that dynamic has followed Bernie all throughout the uh, the country. And now, I, I think the question that we we have to, one of the things I'm posing to folks is, okay, that's fine, but what what deeper level of political organizing to 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 reach a radical transformation i'll be doing that i think is where the gap still lies and where i think a generation is searching for some answers Uh, i don't know if they're all searching you know by my reckoning in in some of the right places but I, i see that question being posed and i think it's a good question it's just is the organizing going to match you know uh help people reach the goals that they aspire to that's the question
0: The character of Biden, I mean, he's given his association in the past with the worst Southern racists in the Senate, uh, uh, his own uh, racist comments of his own, his uh, enthusiastic support of mass incarceration. How do black voters process that? Is this like they hold their
1: nose and say, this is the best we can do? This is the best we can do. This is the best we can do. What I've heard from, from members in my own family, who know all of what you just stated, who I wouldn't say are given Biden the past. You know, but A, they don't think Bernie is going to win, but they're not motivated enough to challenge it. B, they don't think Bernie at the end of the day uh, could win in the general election. Uh, they just think white supremacy uh, and the belief in, in this society is so ingrained that, it, well, if he was a candidate, uh, that the anti-communism that will be leveled against him, which everybody knows is coming or would come, it's already coming. Would be too much right, will be too much of an obstacle to overcome. You know, uh particularly folks, these are folks you gotta remember who grew up, you know, either at the TLN or at the height of the Cold War. Uh so they remember all of that rhetoric well. And that not just, you know, let me point out, not just on the level of how it played out internationally. Folks remember that how it played out here in the South, right? And and how that was used, uh, really, as a uh, as a means to halt the advances uh, of the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement, right? More the civil rights movement than than the, than the latter. Uh, but how, particularly, all of the the white folks who decided to you know be be stand shoulder to soldier on the marches and do the organizing drives with uh, SNCC and SCLC. Uh, how they were labeled communists and how that wind up being used as a very divisive wedge to, to turn people away from supporting the struggle. So they grew up with this, and that's the America that they remember most vividly, and that's the America they think will show up come November and choose Trump rather than choose Bernie if if if, if it really came down to it. So in trying to remove that option, you know, you go with uh, the the least of two evils, which in this case is uh, Biden. That's the, that's the very explicit logic that I've heard time and time again, you know, particularly
0: the last two weeks. And uh, what about Clyburn's endorsement was seen as influential in South Carolina? Um, you know, the whole congressional black caucuses on the corporate payroll. Uh, what is the influence of that black political class, which just seems to be a deeply conservative force in, within the Democratic Party at this point? Uh, does it influence the broader population?
1: Uh, good question, Doug. Some places it does. I think it in South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, there are definitely some folks who whose voice matters, whose endorsement matters. So, you know, here we're in one of those states where a couple of c- critical voices are going to sway some, some folks uh, without question. Uh, Benny Thompson's voice here in that arena is going to, for instance, to be concrete, is definitely going to sway some folks, but you got to temper that. This, this is what I meant. You know, like for like, who votes? There's a core, you know, number that that we can definitely point to. Who regularly votes, as opposed to just those who just don't engage. Now, those who don't typically engage actually outnumber those who do. But in this type of contest, in this game, is those who show up and what they decide to do. Which are gonna sway matters. And for the black political establishment as, as conservative and reactionary as it is, it's a consi- it's a solid, consistent voting block, and they have very clear material interests siding with the DNC and siding with that apparatus. You know, the the Congressional Black Caucus was once noted as being the, what was the the conscience of America, you you know, for those who uh, uh, might remember such times, or if you never heard that, look it up. You know, in the seventies, it was often touted that way, and I, even well into the eighties, some of his members were, you know, some of the leading forces uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle. You know, amongst amongst others, but uh, that day has long since passed, and it's not just that they're conservative in terms of being tied to the DNC; they've also become very entrenched. And very in line with various capital interests in this country for their own political survival uh, and their own material rewards and benefits. So like with with Clyburn in particular, he's very much tied to the medical industry. I think some of the reports say at least amongst the CBC and I think amongst Congress overall, I knew this even before that South Carolina vote for some things that uh, uh, some folks were doing some action research on that I'm involved in. Uh, before Bernie even went in, and we were trying to give some folks a heads up that uh he 's deep in the pocket of the medical industry, and so his his vote is not going to go in like you know uh, uh, along some lines around policy It's going to go to where his pocket and where his vested interest it is, and that is protecting the medical uh industry and the insurance industry so you know these are things that I think you got to look at it 's not you know their political conservatism isn 't just in uh politics it 's also very much rooted. Uh, in their own material interests. And God knows the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the, uh, the medical industrial complex
0: has a big stake in this election. That's right. A huge one. I was Kaliakuno, Akuno, an organizer with Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood. Back after a musical break. Some of Musette de Choisy by François Couperin, performed by Olivier Beaumont. Amidst all the anxiety and turmoil, I'm deriving great comfort from listening to 300-year-old harpsichord music. Next, Indian fascism. India is governed by what is literally a fascist party, the BJP, around whose leader, Narendra Modi, a genuine cult of personality has grown. The BJP is tied to a Hindu supremacist paramilitary organization, the RSS, founded in 1925, which makes it one of the oldest fascist formations in the world. Hindu nationalists have launched multiple pogroms against Muslims, although, as we'll hear, they're not too fond of Christians or communists either. Here to talk about their belief system is Debyeash Anand, a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Westminster in London. Debyeash Anand. When uh, you wrote this book, it looked like the BJP was in a bit of an ebbing phase. They had not done so well in the 2009 election, right? It's before that, by
2: the way. The research was done when they had lost the election in 2004, yeah, But then, you know,
0: obviously they've uh, uh, had quite the resurgence since. To what do you attribute that resurgence? The
2: way I would say is, one, a lot of hard work that the RSS, which is the Rashtriya Sangh, so the Hindu, far-right Hindu paramilitary organization, they put out a lot of effort after the loss in 2004 general election, which came as a surprise, by the way, right? So between 2004 to 2014, they put a lot of effort into organizing themselves societally. So more than politically, the them societally. So one reason would be very good organisation. Second would be, let's say, the perception that Congress had failed to unify the country and it was highly corrupt. So the whole idea was against corruption. And third is around myth-making around Narendra Modi, the Indian who is now the Indian Prime Minister. So the idea that he's not only a strong Hindu nationalist, but he will bring development to India the way he brought development to Gujarat. So what you'd find is it's a mix of desire that a lot of Indians had, that they wanted a strong leader who would make India strong and also get recognition internationally, but also to do with failure of the opposition party, I mean, now opposition, but at that time ruling party Congress, right, uh, to tackle and tackle them head on. But uh, crucially, which most uh, commentators miss is the organization and the groundwork done by RSS. In your book,
0: you say uh, at least parts of the Hindu nationalist movement were contemptuous of politics as a realm of corruption. Now, how do they cope with the fact that they are in power? Um, is, is that now all the, the issues of corruption? Um, have those all been solved by their, their presence in government?
2: The initial research I've done, where I spent a lot of time with Hindu right-wingers themselves, and I'm talking of RSS, Bajrang Dal, VHP, these are the uh, organizations that would be extremist and hate organizations in most contexts, but now, of course, they are in ruling party. So they would argue that, look, Politics is dirty, and we don't need to get involved in politics all the time. However, and they would say, however, there's a big however that uh, democracy is a system where we need to engage in politics. How do we do it? First, we change the society and culture and community, but we do need to engage in politics because only through politics can we control the state. And the ultimate aim for Hindu nationalists is to change India from nominally secular and democracy to a Hindu nation, right? So what they would say is that, look, we need to come to power in order to transform the state. So now that they're in power, what you'd find is they adopt a very curious uh, language of saying that, okay, yes, BJP is in power, but RSS is still a social cultural organization. And yet what we find is, All the BJP ministers, every few months, they'll go and give the report. So they'll have a report card that they'll give to RSS to say what they have done for Hindu nation. So what the way they say now is that it's a unique opportunity they have under Narendra Modi to work together to transform the state as quickly as possible. They know that they can't change the electorate very easily. They're winning elections, but they're also losing elections, the state assembly elections, right? So they're not managing the federal system better. But their focus is now on not winning elections all the time at every level, but the focus is on changing bureaucracy, changing judiciary, and changing the media landscape. And they're succeeding there.
0: Okay, let's talk some about Hindu nationalism as an ideology. What is their definition of Hindu? It seems to be rather um, uh, flexible.
2: Yes when we deal with, let's say, Muslim nationalism or Christian nationalism or whatever, it's relatively easier compared to Hindu nationalism because the whole context of Hindu or Hindu, right, is something that's residual. So when we go back to late 19th century, the British defined as Hindus those who are not Christians or Muslims. However, over time, since late 19th century, there was a movement to say, look, there is a category called Hindu. Now, the problem Hindu nationalists faces, okay, Hindu nationalists have a very clear ideology. They would argue that, India's Hindu majority and hence it should be Hindu nation. And because secularism according to them gives privileges to minorities therefore secularism should be sidelined and Hindus should be not only majority but also majoritarian. In that context they adopt again very contradictory language. On one level they would say all Indians are Hindus. So you can be a Muslim Hindu, a Christian Hindu, a Jewish Hindu or a Hindu Hindu. So they will say Hinduism is a way of life not a religion unlike Islam and Christianity that's how they would say on the other hand if that was the logic one could say that let's say if relative to Hindu population Muslim population or Christian population is rising in India they should not be a concern because of course everyone is a Hindu right according to them No, then they would say no India's Hindu majority is being diluted because Muslims and Christians especially Muslims are rising Muslims through population growth and uh, uh, conversion and Christianity uh, and Christians through conversion Therefore, we should stop conversion and we have to control the Muslims. So very clear, they have a very fixed idea of Hindu. Hindus are those, officially they say Hindus are those who believe in India, but unofficially on every level through the action, through violence, through uh, the pamphlets, through the leaflets they have. They are very clear, Hindus are those who are not Christians, not Muslims, not even Sikhs, those who now believe in the supremacy of Hindu religion. So not Hindus are equal, but Hindus are superior. And that's something new.
0: They seem to define themselves mostly against Islam or Muslims, uh, but uh, how do Christians figure in in their worldview?
2: Their ideology is very clear. They say that they have four different enemies. One, the Muslims, Islam and Muslims. Second, the church. They usually use the word church rather than Christians, but they'll say Muslims, Christians, so Islam, Christianity. Third are communists, and they would argue that all three have something in common. So according to them, all three are foreign-based right? So the idea Islam comes from Middle East and Christianity also comes from Middle East and West according to them and communism somehow comes from outside and therefore all three enemies. Anyway. But the fourth and the biggest enemy they have are secularists. Secularists. So according to them, secularists are those self-hating Hindus who believe that India should be an equal place for all Christians, Muslims and everyone else, right? Now there were a particular saying which I will say in Hindi and then translate it. It says, kasai fir isai. First the butchers Muslims, they use the butcher as the pejorative for Muslims, all Muslims, first the Muslims and the Christians. They're very clear that they have to tackle Muslims first, and then the Christians and the communists. So you look at the practices of Hindu nations, since they came to power, they are, of course, suppressing Muslims in most places. So they are disenfranchising Muslims, de facto. But they are also putting a stop to building of churches, building of statues of Christ in the other areas. And of course, they're also tackling communists wherever they can, including initially in the West Bengal, then Tripura, now in Kerala. So they have all three. But ultimately, the enemies also include those Hindus who believe in pluralism, who believe in equality.
0: And now what is their view of history? India was once a pure Hindu state and something went wrong along the way to
2: pollute it or dilute it. What happened? When you look at idea of Hinduism, it never existed. So India was never a Hindu nation. It was not a nation, right? It was not even a Hindu civilization. India was a civilization that included Buddhism, Hinduism, and then all kinds of paganistic religion, tribal religion, and they never had anything in common. In fact, you have in India where, let's say, you can be a god in one area and I can be the demon, and in another area, I'll be the god and you become the demon, right? So it was quite complicated and complex. What the British, of course, partly contributed to, and Brahmins aligned with them, was to have a clearer idea of Hindus, which is along the lines of other religion right so the hindu is a particular category now what the hindu nationalists do is they do not even believe in gandhi who was a devout hindu but he also believed in hinduism which from today's version would be seen as quite feminine quite open and quite fluid so when we look at hindu nationalists they have a strong disquiet with fluidity and femininity they want to masculinize religion so according to them history is one where hindus were there forever and then muslims came invaded and defeated hindus and this is why Hindus are sort of passive. And then you had the Christians, the so British, who came and defeated Hindus further. And what we now need is to go back to the ancient glory. It is, and they try to say to people, okay, Hindus were great civilization, and then Muslims came, Christians came, and all we need is a strong, asli mard, a real man, a real leader. And that's Narendra Modi for them.
0: It seems like the British period, the British colonization, does not figure that large in their uh, view of history. Uh, they, they seem to have much older
2: beefs than that. Hindu nationalists in the past, before and during the British, they never fought against the British. They were keen on fighting against the Muslims and against Congress, which they saw as enemy. So what you had was a situation where both the Hindu nationalists and the Muslim nationalists were on a similar page, where they did not see India as one nation, but they saw India as two nations, Hindus and Muslims. And then Hindu nationalists today would argue that because Pakistan, both East and and West, which then became Pakistan and Bangladesh later, right? Because Pakistan was formed as somehow homeland for Muslims for uh, Indian subcontinent, India should become Hindu. The challenge they face, of course, is that uh, they are also trying to be nationalists, not only Hindu nationalists. But in the process of nationalism, they will try to say that they are the true nationalists and those who believe in secular, pluralist India are anti-national. But again, if we go back to history 60, 70, 80 years ago, we do find that RSS, for instance, right, they refused to fly tricolor, which is the Indian flag. They would always fly Bhagwa. Bhagwa would be Saffron flag. So they were, in one sense, anti-Indian nationalists. And yet we live in a situation where because they not only control the legislation, but also executive and increasingly permanent bureaucracy, judiciary, judiciary is becoming almost disciplined in the last few years, uh, they can peddle the myth that they are the nationalists and secularists are somehow westernized and hence anti-Hindu.
0: You touched on this a bit earlier, but let's develop it some. The role of masculinity in, in this uh, ideology is really profound. Hinduism, they see as somehow feminizing the body politic, and they need to uh, assert a various uh, assertive masculinity, right, to counter that?
2: Yeah. So see, again, I said, uh, this is where we realize that Hindu na- contemporary Hindu nationalists are not it didn't come out of nowhere. There were examples of it in late 19th and even mid 19th century in British India, where there were aspects of growing Indian nationalism, which had this element of Hindus being weak. And of course, what contributed to the idea of Hindus being weak was the British idea of Hindus being weak, right? So, of course, British operated on divide and rule. Therefore, they would try to masculinize Muslims and feminize Hindus. That's what they tried to do, right? But they also tried to feminize Muslims in other contexts, like in Iran other place. So, that was again. Now, the Hindu nationalism had this aspect of, oh, we as Hindus are weak, but we need to be strong. But you had a situation with Congress, specifically with Gandhi. Gandhi was not that much into masculinizing. In fact, he was very much into the idea of Hindus being fluid, open, right? He had his own problems, severe problems around caste, no doubt. Now, what contemporary Hindu nationalism do is they would say that, look, we need a masculinist state. They would say that look, Muslims have various countries in the Middle East, Christians have so many countries in the West, Communists have China and whatever the countries, right? So Hindus have only one state, which is India, and India needs to be strong. And this argue that India is strong but not really strong. So it's strong, but not recognized as strong. Why is it not recognized as strong? It's not recognized as strong because it doesn't portray its power politics abroad. Why does it not power, portray power politics? Because of Congress and its weakness and secularism. So they would argue that Hindu nation has to masculinize the country. So when I did my research in 2005 and 6, I did not go with gender sexuality question per se. I was just... I was disturbed slash curious about one question. How could so many Hindus who, in that point, there was a violence in pogrom, anti-Muslim pogrom in Gujarat in 2002. And I saw a lot of Hindus justifying it by saying Muslims asked for it. And it reminded me of the, you know, the rape justification. That, oh, women asked for it because of the clothes they wear, the way they behaved and everything. Right. So I went with that. But what I found was, and I, I said, I spent a lot of time. I was, okay, I was a younger man there, right? I was in late 20s. So because I was seen as a young man, uh, Hindu-named man, I'm a queer and atheist, but that was not my identity then, right? So I was seen as a Hindu person with Hindu name. So people will share a lot of stories with me, these young men, activists. They claim to have killed. They claim to have raped. True of all, they would claim, and there would be a lot of boys talk of, oh, how I killed and how I raped. And, right? So a lot of what I found is what I termed as porno-nationalism a very violent pornographic imagination of muslim women but muslim men in particular as seducers and rapists so the idea of hindu nation is we need to protect our women right our inverted comma our women our family our society our community and our nation and even our world from these rapacious muslim men so that was the overall story so how do you do it you do it by first recognizing that Muslims are bad men, right? And then you recognize that Muslim women are bad and weak women, right? So you either liberate them or you also see them as villains. And then you do it by masculinizing yourself. So the idea is the justification of all kinds of violence, Hindu-nationalist violence, Hindu-fascist violence, right, is on the grounds that you are dealing with an enemy that's masculinist, and therefore you need to be masculinist. So, violence of destruction of Babi Mosque in Ayodhya in 92, uh, the anti-Muslim program in Gujarat in 2002, and now the anti-Muslim pro- uh, program in uh, Delhi in 2020. In all of that, you, what you find is men, young men, middle-aged men, saying that this is how Hindu nation has to be awakened.
0: Violence is an important part of, uh, of their, their uh, practice, right?
2: It is. It's pure. There's a particular slogan I read in Ayodhya. Ayodhya is a play where there was a mosque, historic mosque, uh, since uh, late 15th century that was brought down, and the Supreme Court of India has finally given a judgment, and it will become a temple, right? And there they said that while philosophy is good, your strength comes from your arms, right? They were very clear that, of course, as good Brahmins and Brahminical forces, we should focus on the mind, Right. But mind has no value without the arm and therefore the strength. They're very clear that violence is something that will purify the body. So, the violence against uh, Muslims and violence against Christians, so they're examples of anti Christian violence also, right? And anti communist violence. So, violence against enemies of the nation will purify you. Therefore, you not only be- prove your heroism and nationalism by committing violence against the minorities, or at least justifying and accepting violence against minorities, but you also prove your masculinity by that. Of course, sometimes, not a lot, but sometimes you also see evidence of Hindu women being involved in encouraging violence against Muslims, right? In that case, also, they are seen as true Hindu women who are willing to sacrifice their femininity in order to be masculine. So it's all a project of masculinization.
0: I'm speaking with Debyeash Anand, Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Westminster in London. They're doing this in defense of Mother India, right? Mother India is feminized in in this discourse. Uh, So what is this, like some sort of chivalrous masculinity rising to defend uh, the weak woman? One would
2: have thought that, right? That it would be, about oh, weak women we have to protect. So the wider narrative is that, of course, Hindu women are weak and we need to protect them so a lot of it is therefore about control over hindu female sexuality in most cases there is this concept of love jihad love jihad is a conspiracy That's conjured up by Hindu nationalism, which is, according to them, a conspiracy of Muslim men to seduce Hindu women, right? It's a conspiracy of a conspiracy. Now, in that context, the idea is Hindu women who fall in love with or go out with or marry Muslim men are all victims of love jihad. So they are being seduced. And that's somehow part of some wider conspiracy. Right. So in that context, they will say that Hindu women have no agency. So you see. What we find, this is why masculinity becomes so crucial to understand. It's not only justification of violence against Muslim uh, men, right? So castrating them. That's a very clear idea that we need to castrate them. And second, rape against Muslim women because we need to sh- make them taste their own medicine. But it's also to control sexuality and uh, choice and agency of Hindu women. Now, in that process, what they would say is, but what about Mother India? Now, they would argue that Mother India is actually... So, the imag- imagination of Mother India is also changing in the last 30 years. So, when I was growing up in India, the imagination of Mother India was still feminine, but oh, you know, a mother kind of figure, right? Now, she's another mother kind of figure, which is quite willing to fight. So, now the idea is not you have to protect your Mother India. Now, it's changing to that you have to go along with your Mother India, where Mother India is also violent, who's going to commit violence, right? So there's a transformation of Mother India from one where she needs your protection as good sons to one where she's leading your way. Now join her.
0: You're right. The ideal masculinity uh, for uh, Hindu nationalists is virile as- asexuality for the activists and control sexuality for the general population. Could you uh, expand on that?
2: This is something different in let's say, Indian fascism compared to many other fascisms, right? So if you take example of the German fascism, Nazism, you did not have this idea that leaders have to be ascetic or asexual, right? It was about, it's about compulsory heterosexuality. Now, in in Hindu nationalism context, and this is where it becomes particular, it's particular to Indian culture also is, the idea is you need to sacrifice your sexuality for uh, Mother India, for the wider cause of nation. Now, there would be people in India who would sacrifice sexuality for sake of dharma, religion, in the past, right? So they become sadhus and saints and whatever, right? That's one idea. But the idea is, in this case, like Narendra Modi, he was married to a woman, he abandoned his wife, but rather than being criticized as someone who abandoned his wife and therefore did not fulfill his duty as a husband, they would see it as he sacrificed his family life in order to serve the nation. So that's the ascetism there. And they have a very particular sexualized connotation there, and which, again, a lot of people don't realize. The idea is that if you have sex, right, so you discharge semen. Discharge of semen somehow takes away your vital energy. So what do you do? By not discharging your semen, by not having sex, right, you preserve your vital energy, and therefore you can be truly nationalist, right? So it's a very odd, but not surprising for those who understand the Indian context, form of national where certain form of asceticism then becomes one that justifies violence. And one more thing, unlike Congress and others who are people leaders with families, therefore can want corruption because they want children to have money, people like Narendra Modi have no family and therefore they will not be corrupt, right? So this whole anti-corruption rhetoric is also used very effectively by them. And
0: most of what you described is uh, still quite heterosexual. Um, is there any um, anxiety about uh, the, uh, the penetration of queer sexuality into Indian society? It's
2: very clear that it's a, it's, a, it's a deeply homosocial and homophobic heterosexist discourse, right? Homosocial because it's all about, you know, bromance, boys, working with boys, working together, right? That kind of thing. Homosocial. But it's homophobic. Because the idea is the moment you're homosexual, then you pervert the idea of uh, homosociality and also heterosexuality, right? It's very clear. However you also have a new trend in India, which was not there in the past, where in, in India, until a couple of years ago, uh, homosexuality was criminalized, right, under the British law, and it was continued. And the opponents of decriminalization included Hindu right. So Hindu right, Muslim right, Christian right, all of them sort of agreed to say that, look, um, somehow homosexuality is a Western disease. That's how they portrayed. However, the courts made the judgment, and the courts made it very clear that there has to be decriminalization. Now, no Hindu right-wing leader took initiative in it to say, yes, we support it. But they had to accept because courts made that decision. But now what we find is a new phenomenon where the Hindu right-wing, right, they are not accepting LGBTQ. They just keep quiet. In fact, some of the very prominent leaders, one including who was quite prominent at Harvard at one point in time, Dr. Subramanian Swami, he would say that homosexuality is a disease, right? So he would say it has to be cured. So they were of that kind. But there is a section of Indian LGBT movement, right, largely upper-class, upper-caste Hindu gay cis men, right, very privileged, who have this peculiar notion that, oh, we should admire Modi and we should admire Hindu nation, nationalists, because they're making India strong. So, within LGBTQ movement, now there's a divide in India, where most people that would include people like myself, right, who would argue that to be queer is to challenge all forms of injustices and bigotries, and therefore, we have to challenge Hindu fascism. And then those, uh, there are some prominent activists, right, I said most of them uh, cis men, uh, cis privileged gay men, who would say, oh, no, no, anything that talks of pride is no longer about protest, pride should be about celebration, and we should sort of join Narendra Modi and Indian government and celebrating India. So that aspect is emerging now.
0: Yeah. And how does um, this ideology comport with um, the neoliberalism that uh, Modi uh, celebrates? I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, once uh, we're supposed to see uh, Modi as a very modernizing force, but uh, there's this, uh, you know, this part of his ideology that looks backwards to an ideal India. How do they reconcile all
2: this? they do. In fact, a colleague of mine, Dr. Natasha Call, she has written about, again, I think she calls this post-colonial neoliberal nationalism, right? So she talks of the way the image and Modi myth. Modi myth combines the idea of strong Hindu nation and as well as strong neoliberal leader, right? So both of them, he brings it together. In fact, when you look at elections 2014, uh, the idea was that the Not all liberals, right? But there were aspects of centrist Indians who said we should give him a chance because he's not corrupt and he has brought development in Gujarat, right? And therefore, uh, and he can manage RSS, the far right uh, fascists, right? Because he would get vote from the middle classes, right? That was justification they used. That when he comes to power, what you would find is marginalization of. Yeah, Hindu nationalism and focus on development and progress in neoliberal terms. But that has not happened. In fact, what we are seeing is from day one, even in neoliberal terms, Modi has not succeeded in various ways. Indian economy is going down. The foreign investment in India is going down, right? So growth is not high. It's largely a jobless growth. So in neoliberal terms, okay, not only in uh, human development context is going down, but even in neoliberal terms, it's not doing well. What they're therefore doing is they're ratcheting up the rhetoric around Hindu nation and nation, right? So he's doing that. And what he's encouraging, as uh, Natasha pointed out in her work, is around crony capitalism. So it was never about even a pure neoliberalism. It's very much about uh, crony capitalism. So that he has been very good at working with. So what you find, of course, is because they managed to control the mainstream media, right? Large section of Indian media would sound like, They're not national media anymore. They're nationalist media. If you look at Fox News, right? And Fox News would be mild in comparison to most of them now. So like in my own interaction, I interact with a lot of Indian journalists. They would broadly speaking agree with me and have disquiet about Modi. But they would say that they are not allowed to say all of that on television. So what you find, therefore, is growing entrenchment of Hindu nationalists and even the big business, some of them raised queries about Modi and they had, you know, court cases against them. They had uh, sort of uh, income tax rates against them. But most of the big businesses they have gone quiet or have started siding with Modi.
0: Uh, and finally, um, they look to be quite strong now. They've lost a couple of regional elections, but uh, they do look to be on the march. Are there any cracks in the, in the, the edifice of Modi and the BJP or are they really uh, a strong force uh, to deal with for years to come?
2: See, again, a few years ago, after 2014, right, they won the election and they, people. it was predicted that they'd lose the election, the 2019 election, right, because economy was not doing well. And therefore, his promise that somehow, you know, it would be a new kind of uh, new Iran-India did not materialize. There was almost, one could say, a, mani- a real a manufactured. In fact, a lot of us would say it was manufactured crisis, uh, an attack in Kashmir, uh, which they blame pakistan then they went into pakistan but they control the media now internationally no one sees modi as having achieved anything there but nationally he controlled the media where a lot of people felt that here there's a leader even if you don't get food even if you don't get anything here's the leader who's going to tackle pakistan so that is working there right but in in state elections so the provincial elections bjp has lost in most places so far when it comes to state elections bjp as a machinery is not succeeding and modi's myth does not work right so bjp is not working that could be the possible signs of hope but the problem we face is that even in those states when people are asked would they vote for modi if he was standing election they say yes so there's a personality cut so what modi has successfully done is the idea of one leader one party one nation which we know is also Hitler, right? But that's what has been consolidated very clearly. Now, some would have said that in India, but you have free press, you have got judiciary. Judiciary is quite vibrant, but in last two years, judiciary has practically given up on its role to critique the government and they started using not only a nationalist language, but also Hindu nationalist language and think it's as bad or even worse than now Supreme Court of US in that context, right? So the only hope I would say is there's still a lot, lot of protests in India, not only religious minorities, the secularist leftists they are mobilizing in different parts of India, right, so if that mobilization continues and if somehow they can encourage opposition parties to come together, they might be hope otherwise i'm someone who's quite pessimistic because I do see that a country that could be fascist will become the largest uh, fascist country in the world until unless until unless in the next two to three years there is a major anti fascist backlash in India, and we do not see evidence of coordinated anti-fascist backlash so far.
0: You did allude to Hitler. Um, That's not a far-fetched
2: analogy, right? Not at all. In fact, uh, I remember in 2015 or 2016, Modi came to Britain, right? And there was a television program and I was asked to be there. So they said, oh, isn't he very popular? I said, yes, he's very popular the way a certain leader was popular in 1930s. And they said, it's an exaggeration. I said, it's not an exaggeration because the ideology is very similar, right? I said, one leader, one party, one nation. So the imagination of Jews was of Jews as weak, but Jews as ultra-powerful. Jews as hyper-communist, Jews as hyper-capitalist, right? Exploitative, but in the end, Jews as someone who we need to exterminate. And that's the broader ideology of uh, Hindu nationals have in India, against both Muslims and Christians to start with, right? That's the ideology they use. And any non-Muslim, non-Christian who would dare to defy them would be get declared as anti-national. So it is an extreme form of nationalism, which has become quite mainstream there. Therefore, I would say that, in fact, it's very important to talk of fascism and talk of Hitler, not because it's a rhetorical point, because it's also a political point and awakening point, because we know what happened with Hitler, right? Why wait for 1939, 1940, Hitler when we are dealing with 1933-34 Germany, right? At this point in time, what we need is a coordinated backlash against fascism in India, but that can also take place in hand in hand with growing awareness internationally, including everywhere, including in the West, right? Of the fact that Modi is not just another Indian nationalist. Modi is representing a phenomenon that's a danger not only to India, but to the wider world.
0: That was Dibyash Anand, a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Westminster in London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. More Couperin, performed by Olivier Beaumont. This, a bit of Les fastes de la Grande et Ancienne Ménestrandise. Apologies for my poor French. Till next week, one hopes. Bye.